Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, my first guest is Anne Mee Lee. She's in two exhibitions at the Yale University Art Gallery, Artists in Exile, Expressions of Loss and Hope, which considers the work of artists who have left the countries of their birth, and Before the Event After the Fact, Contemporary Perspectives of War, which examines how photographers have portrayed war. Artists in Exile was curated by Frauke Josenhans. Before the Event After the Fact was organized by Judy Dittner. Both exhibitions are on view in New Haven through December 31st. The catalog for Artists in Exile was published by Yale University Press. Lee is a Vietnamese-American photographer whose work considers the confluence of war, landscape, and memory. She's had solo exhibitions at the Baltimore Museum of Art, Dia Beacon, and MoMA PS1, and in 2012 she won a MacArthur Fellowship, that's a MacArthur Genius Grant. On the second segment, I'll be joined by Catherine Bradford to discuss her recent work on the occasion of Focus, Catherine Bradford, at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. The exhibition, curated by Allison Hurst, is on view through January 14, 2018. This fall, Bradford will also be exhibiting in Prospect 4, the New Orleans Triennial that is curated by Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University curator Trevor Schoonmaker. But first, Anne Lee, after the break. Celebrate Pacific Standard Time LALA, an ambitious exploration of Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles, on Saturday, November 11th at 7.30 p.m., Hailing from the colorful La Boca neighborhood of Buenos Aires, Maria Volante and Kevin Carroll Footer of the Blue Tango Project will fill the open-air stage with echoes of tango's forbidden pleasures and the lament of solitary blues soul. Learn about this free event and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. The most exciting and critically acclaimed exhibition of the fall season is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Items is fashion modern, explores 111 garments and accessories, from doorknocker earrings and the little black dress to the bucket hat and the white t-shirt, items that have had a profound impact on the world over the last century. Get more info at moma.org and plan your visit today. See six Pacific Standard Time exhibitions in San Diego for free or reduced admission over Thanksgiving weekend by simply showing an ID with an out-of-San-Diego County zip code. Exhibitions include... Art of the Americas, Pre-Columbian Art from Mingay's Collection at the Mingay International Museum, Memories of Underdevelopment, Art and the Decolonial Turn in Latin America, 1960-1985 at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, Point Counterpoint, Contemporary Mexican Photography at the Museum of Photographic Art San Diego, Undocumenta at Oceanside Museum of Art, Modern Masters from Latin America, the Perez-Simon Collection at the San Diego Museum of Art, and Xerografia, copy art in Brazil 1970-1990 at the University of San Diego. More information at pstlalasandiego.org. And we're back. Anne-Mee Lee, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me, Tyler. I'd like to start with the subject of one of the Yale shows, Exile, or at least the long-term absence from Homeland. Back in 2005, you told the critic Richard Woodward that upon returning to Vietnam in 1994, having been away since you were a teenager in 1975, that it was the land you felt connected to, that you, quote, reconnected to the land in spite of the changes. And, and so I'm a Westerner. I, I'm a native Californian who lived in the Northeast for 20 years before returning to the West. And I understand that feeling, but I have a very hard time articulating it. So what was the connection you felt? We'll, we'll come to how you got it into your work in a minute. But what was the connection you felt? Well, I think that when you live in exile and when you're away from your homeland or where you were born, where you were raised and you don't think you'll ever be able to return, it, it does something to you. I think that you sort of grasp on whatever memories you have. I think certain things are enhanced, certain things are forgotten. It, it's kind of a desperate thing, and it's very selective. But I think there's a kind of authenticity. There's, there's a, you're always looking for what the real thing is, what it really was. And I think over time it gets more obscured, it gets shifted. And, and so, for example, you know, going to the movies and seeing all those Vietnam War movies, and I, I could spot, 
you know, whether we were really in Vietnam or not. And I knew from the beginning that uh, before Vietnam opened, that all the Vietnam War movies were shot in the Philippines or in Thailand or in Malaysia. The, the, somehow it seemed to me that the palm trees were not quite right or the rice fields were not the right green. And, and so there, there's a, a kind of desire for the real thing. And so as soon as I got back to Vietnam, and it was so unexpected and so sudden that it could happen, I think somehow I had a revelation that this was real, this was it. And, and I think people change. Uh, the land change also, but somehow it, they're just layers that are sort of on top of the original. And, and somehow it just... It was revelatory for me to be in Vietnam, and, and I, I became, a, magically, I became a landscape, landscape photographer. We'll talk about ideas around landscape in a moment, but do you remember thinking through, either very quickly and figuring it out or having to really work on it, do you remember having to think through how to share that connection visually? No, I think it was uh, very intuitive. What worked what I realized worked very well for me was just to ride my bicycle on the road, on a small road, and, and look for different landscapes. Uh, eventually, I, I upgraded to having a driver with a motorbike, and that allowed me to move faster. But northern Vietnam, even southern Vietnam, anyway Vietnam, the, the land is not very flat, so you could be on a road and it would be on a dike and you would look down. And so the the kind of view one had of the landscape was was really... It's sort of like having a cherry picker with you all the time, you know, often. So it, it allowed for a spreading of the land that was really unusual. You know, in America, you go to Iowa and you have these huge fields and it's flat and you're on the same level. So you, you can't really see the horizon. You can't really see how things develop between you and the horizon. And that's something that uh, was not true in Vietnam. And I think that idea of scale just became so apparent to me. And, and that, that was sort of my visual solution. You know, you, you, there, there's certain things that I responded to. And, and, of course, I had never been to northern Vietnam before. I was born in the south. My family's from the north, but they moved south in 1954. So, you know, but I, I, I had seen from photographs, some conversations with my grandmother and my mother, that there's certain things there in the architecture, in the way a field is drawn, in the way the irrigation is designed, in the way the creeks and the little rivers are flowing. You know, those things somehow just spoke to me and, and felt very familiar. And so it was really about how to describe all of it. So I think I understood what it meant to draw the landscape. And, and so the pictures were about drawing. And it was black and white, and so it was perfect for drawing. And how do you make the most complicated, intricate drawing? That's interesting. In, in, late, in the late 19th century in the United States, photographs were quite often referred to as sketches, which uses the same kind of vocabulary of pencil and paper as, as you're using. Yeah. I think drawing is also a way to draw the viewer into the picture. So where do you start? You know, I think it's it's very similar to what happens with landscape design. You need to bring someone into the space and you need to sort of guide them. So what strategies do you use? And it's not as if I'm standing there and thinking of those things, but I think it was always how to avoid the uh, division, you know, the, the top third, this the bottom third. Uh, it, it just seemed to me that one of the issues I had with landscape photography was uh the way people summarily divided a photograph into two parts, three parts, horizontal parts. And so how do you provide a, a structure that was uh, much more intricate and uh, more interesting? So turning back the clock to the early to mid-1990s, was your initial interest landscape or soldiering or, or war and conflict? Which came first? I, I would say none of the above. <laughs> and when I started grad school, you know, I, I was not trained as a photographer. So I discovered photography by chance. I, I was trained as a scientist. I was supposed to go to medical school and really discovered photography by chance. You were a, bi you were a biology major at Stanford, yeah, for yeah, example. So in California, I, I moved to France. And through my photography professor at Stanford, 
got a job as the staff photographer of this Guild of Craftsmen. And so I, I, I learned, uh, I mean, I, that was my training ground, photographing staircases and vaults and castles and churches. And so I was interested in that tradition of the craftsman, of the woodworker and the stonemason and the stonecutter. So, you know, I was primarily interested in making portraits and photographing interiors. I was interested in the tools. I was in, interested in history. And I think when I came to graduate school, I was still holding on to those notions of what was interesting. I switched to looking at craftsmen in America. It didn't quite inspire me as much. And I, I think pretty much I got encouraged to, I think, look at, to, to make work that was more autobiographical. Um, not coming from an art background, not coming from a family of artists, it was uh, very difficult for me to, to try to figure out what that meant. I think growing up, uh, the best thing I could do was to get past the war and its effect on my life. And I think now I was being asked to consider all those issues. And, and, and it was not easy. I think it was also not easy because I did not have access to, I could not travel to Vietnam. I did not have access to the country. And so being a photographer who likes to work in the real world, it, it was a tough thing. I, I think I would have a much easier time today if that was the case. But back then, I felt that I could not uh, answer any of those questions without being there. But within a few years of leaving graduate school, Clinton renewed uh, relations, lifted the embargo, renewed relations with Vietnam. And so Vietnamese Americans were able to travel there safely. And, and that was the big departure for me. So in those years before you could travel to Vietnam... Did you look at the history of art or the history of photography and how artists and photographers had addressed conflict and conflict and landscape in their work? You know, people like Roger Fenton or Alexander Gardner, if you will. I did, but I don't think I looked at it through the landscape of conflict. I think I looked at it through... I mean, I think I looked at it as, as war photography, but I don't think I looked at it through in ways that would resonate with me personally. Do you remember what you started looking at back then that helped form, helped you figure it out, as it were? I started looking at them when I began to photograph the Vietnam War reenactors. And so after having traveled to Vietnam, I think for five years, every year. And, and I used the five by seven view camera for those landscapes. You know, I had to deal with the issue of the war because all of those pictures of Vietnam avoided anything that had to do with war. And so I felt that it was time to, to look at that. And by chance, I learned about these young men who reenact the Vietnam War. So I did a little research, and uh, I found a, a number of groups, and I chose the group that was closest to New York, traveled down there to photograph them. Uh, I made some pictures with a medium-format camera. I was not very happy with the results. Uh, the photographs were not physical enough for me. They were not experiential. They, it's not that they lacked sharpness. They lacked a kind of three-dimensionality. And so it became clear to me that I needed to work with the 5 by 7 which seemed sort of impossible back then. Um, I'd never really quite photographed action using the view camera. But then I remembered the, um, you know, Fenton, and I remembered O'Sullivan and, and took great inspiration from them. And I think I adopted the strategy of perhaps photographing before the action, uh, photographing the aftermath. Uh, I learned about how that could be very powerful too. I learned to set up more and, 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 and to really direct. So, so that's when I started looking at those photographers in a way that was uh, much more personal. The body of work you were just referencing is, is titled Small Wars, and we'll be talking more about it as, as we go along and we'll have images from it on manpodcast.com. I don't want to be that guy who asks an artist who makes photographs about her gear or her camera, but <laughs> but seeing as you brought it up, I couldn't help but notice in an Art 21 video of your making work at Trap Rock, which is a basalt quarry along the Hudson River, that you were using a wooden Deerdorf 4x5 camera that hasn't been manufactured in about 30 years. 
<laughs> Why? <laughs> well, it's it's actually a four by five special, so it's a it's a five by seven view camera. So the 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 film is a little larger than four by five and longer. So it's a different format, different ratio. Uh, a why? Well, it's a view camera, so it could be wood, it could be you know metal. I think that's what I owned at the time, and and it's a the Deardorff is a very intuitive camera. It, it may not be the most precise view camera. You know, there's so many cameras that are much more view cameras that are much more sophisticated. But that's the camera I I it, it was the second camera I owned, and and I I I was attached to it, and and. I just love the way the knobs work. I love how, I mean, and I, I did buy some other more sophisticated cameras at one point that were lighter and I didn't really like the way they, they functioned. But but I use it because of the larger negative and because of the quality of the prints that I can get from that negative. Obviously, there are very sophisticated digital cameras these days. And I think if I was shooting 4x5, there would be no question I would switch to a digital camera. But but I think there is something about the five by seven neg or eight by ten the the quality that it gives to to a print that is is difficult to obtain with the digital camera. I think there's a stacking up of things that happens with the digital file, the way the chip records information that doesn't happen on the negative. I think you sense that there's space in between two things that are in front of one another, and there's a descriptive quality that I really liked. We've been speaking about landscape pictures, but you very often, whether it's the Vietnam pictures or the Small Wars pictures or the 29 Palms pictures, very often have people in, in your landscape. Sometimes they're very tiny, sometimes they're a little bit bigger, but but they're very rarely the primary thing in a picture. Is placing of a human or, or, or kind of in, in the context of the landscape, small-scale human activity... You know, is placing a person in a picture a, a metaphor for you, maybe for the smallness of the individual in the context of a war, or does it do something else for you? There's some other reason you like having having people in the pictures. I think it's about giving context. It goes back to something that's really important to me, the issue of scale. And scale works in, in, in many ways. You know, it could be about a Vietnamese drowned out in in American foreign policy, you know, being shuttled back and forth and suffering the consequences. It could be a young soldier, you know, in the larger uh, machinery of American military forces. It could be, you know, just a farmer working hard on his rice field. So, and maybe because I, I, I'm not necessarily a very psychological photographer, you know, I tend to step back away from a close-up of a person. I mean, it's not that I don't try to make portraits. I don't think it's necessarily my strength. I think there's something very moving about seeing the context of the individual within something that's so much larger. And sometimes, you know, the individual can trick it out. Sometimes you're just overwhelmed by those larger forces. I think it can be very moving, and, and it can make one think about the greater issues at large. You know, I think in America sometimes we so or often we're so concerned about ourselves and we're so concerned about our individual lives. And I think this is a way to say that uh, we're just one aspect of something so much larger and so much more complicated. And it's not that I feel helpless, but but perhaps I have felt helpless in the past. As I prepared to speak with you, I spent a lot of time thinking about how war had been portrayed in centuries of paintings. And it, it tends to, 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 to come forward as the heroic moment, the death of the hero or the hero having participated in some momentous action or, or pictures of the moment of victory, such as in like Velasquez's Surrender of Breda. And in your pictures, small wars or 29 palms people are just cogs in the machine and they are really small within enormous spaces and it it's a it's 180 degrees from the way art history has done war which is really kind of thrilling <laughs> well i'm not so much interested in portraying war i think i'm more interested in um portraying its effect 
I'm more interested in looking at how one prepares for war or how war affects or the consequences of war and, and how, how, how morally, you know, right it is to embark into such a, an endeavor. I think I was basically trying to talk about war in a way that I had not seen it being portrayed while I was growing up. And I think while I was growing up, it was all those things you mentioned, you know, and, and uh, I'm, I'm saying they were important moments, you know, about the individual soldier in the field, about the action, about the devastation, about uh, the horrors of war, and about victories also. Um, and I think war affects people in so many different ways, and I wanted to uh, touch on those other subjects. One of the ways you show the impact of, of, of conflict, whether real or, or training exercise or, or reenactment, one of the ways you show that impact is in explosions set in the landscape, big ones, small ones, puffs of dirt, screaming streaks of light across a picture taken at night, for example. These are in both the Small Wars pictures and in the 29 Palms works, too. There are so many of them, I figured you that that's something you must like showing. There, there, there must be a reason you gravitate toward, toward those pictures. What is it? It's something that I grappled with. I think it's, uh, it's about being comfortable showing that war can be spectacular. And whether you're talking about explosions, whether you're talking about dramatic smoke engulfing things, that there is something absolutely sublime, if not devastating, about those moments, especially if you're not close. And I think I wanted to not ignore that. I think it was a way to say that, yes, there could be some things that are spectacular and exciting, maybe not the right word, but thrilling. But at the same time, it's it's also devastating. And I think I think it was a big step for me to 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 feel comfortable treating a subject in complicated ways. There's just not one way one should feel about war. And, and, and you know, I think it, it, it's it can be thrilling. I think a soldier who goes to war uh, experiences something that is out of the ordinary. I think people perform in ways that they would not perform in normal life. I think they have friendships and relationships that are extraordinary and they feel like superhumans in a way but then there are also you know some devastating sides to war of course and and, and so I, I think I wanted to to try to explore all the contradictions there are a couple of pictures in 29 palms in which you place the aftermath of either an explosion or, or something like an explosion, something that kicks up a lot of dust, where you place that action of the dust being kicked up against the dramatic mountainous desert landscape. There's one picture of some soldiers in the foreground, some, some lying on their bellies, some sitting on rocks, looking at this off in the distance. There are other pictures of, and there are a couple, there are a couple other examples in that series. Were you interested in the juxtaposition of the human explosion, explosive drama against the more kind of stolid, having been there for thousands of years, beautiful desert mountains? Oh, absolutely. I think it's to try again to give perspective. And so the, I think there's something very contemplative about a landscape in war. I think that it's about the use of scale. And I think you... you you have the description of a, an explosion that could be devastating, but then in the context of these incredible landscapes and these massive looming mountains in the back, um, I think you, you then need to, to think about this force that is much greater than, than war, that is maybe not controllable. I think it's, it's, a, it's about contemplation. It's about beauty also. You know, it's something that I struggled with because there were so many moments that were beautiful watching those trainings, and I'm sure it is, and I've spoken to Vietnam war vets about it, that sometimes in combats there are moments when, you know, it, it can be quite beautiful. In Vietnam, I, I, I don't know about Iraq, and they all spoke about the landscape and how inspiring it was and how beautiful and seductive it was. And, and so it's about reconciling this idea of 
beauty and war and creating a, a, a tension. But uh, yes, and so yes, uh, I think that the mountains are there to show that uh, how many wars have there been in Vietnam and uh, what lessons have we learned and uh, you know, some things don't change. About those explosions and dramatic moments in, in the midst of landscape pictures, I, I understand certainly that your work is about 60 or 70 percent uh, a different thing than Naoya Hadakiyama's work about explosions in the Japanese landscape, specifically to make concrete or cement. But the impact of explosions on landscape links the two works in kind of a pictorial or formalist almost way. Has, has his work been of interest to you at all? I actually don't know his work. I'm sorry. His explosions cover more of the field than yours do, <laughs> if you will, to to be pictorially weird about it. But there is that same kind of sublimity. <laughs> yeah, I think that often when we see photographs of explosions, you know, you write there in the explosion, you know, the photographer is so close. And I'm sure it's following the Kappa dogma of, if you the picture's not good, it's because you're not close enough. So you got to be close. But for me, it was always how far can you get back before the picture falls apart. And and I think if you get back far enough and you can keep all the tensions on the edges of the frame everywhere else in the photograph, it makes for a much more complicated picture. So so how do you relate something devastating and also beautiful with perhaps a landscape that has been there? for so long and is immovable. And so I think I wanted to create those tensions. I wanted us to think about history. I wanted us to think about the unfolding moment while not forgetting the history. And whether it's a history because it's 29 Palms, whether it's the history of Timothy O'Sullivan photographing there in his survey of the West, or whether it's a landscape that stands in for Afghanistan or parts of Iraq. And, and it's an interesting landscape because in the 60s, the Marines were training there for Vietnam as well, in addition to creating these tropical villages in Florida. They also were training in 29 Palms. So there are pictures in many of your series that seem to refer to other pictures in other series you've made. So take a picture from small wars of, of bamboo in the foreground and what looks like pine trees in the background, and it's a picture where the bamboo in the foreground and probably pine trees in the background fill the whole frame of the picture. And there are sort of similar pictures like that in other series. There's a picture in, in the Vietnam work, and actually I think more than one picture in the Vietnam work, in which the lush denseness of a Vietnamese forest fills the entire frame of a picture. Is that linking of landscapes via your pictures in your work across your career a decade or so apart, is that intentional? Or is that just your eye and brain at work and, and we're seeing it? <laughs> you know, I think one needs to be intuitive when one is out in the field and photographing. But of course, uh, it's something that I thought about carefully when I edited the work. And, and it's that one moment when I actually feel that I wanted to kind of shove the landscape into the viewer's face, and this is where we are, and this is what it looks like. And I think perhaps I wanted, you know, just as much as the way you construct a movie, you know, you have establishing shots, and then you need to get close-ups, and you need to be up there into the materiality of things, and I think that's what those moments are for. And, and I understand that, you know, because the pictures are, my pictures are much more constructed. They have a certain scale. They have a certain, they're, they're, more, they're, they're more subtle. And I felt that I needed to give them a kind of, to break up the rhythm or to give them a rhythm by changing the point of view and by pulling the viewer much closer. But it, it, it's also, you know, I think at times I just reverted back to remembering a lot of war movies with soldiers just walking through the jungle and, you know, the leaves are hitting him in the face and uh, the leeches and all of this. And, and I think it's, it's also about that or just pushing the leaves to see what's on the other side, that idea of not being able to see the enemy right away or seeing the landscape or seeing the arrival or seeing your, your escape. So I sort of have the same question about two very different pictures. One is from your recent series, The Silent General, 
It's a picture of the burning of a sugarcane field in, I'm going to mess up this pronunciation, sorry, Houma, 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 Louisiana? Houma. Houma. And, it, and so it's a picture, you know, as you can probably tell from my description, it's a picture where there's a lot of smoke because the cane field is, is being burned. And there are a lot of pictures, uh, especially in small wars, of smoke being used by the actors in the picture for example, in Small Wars, to, to mask what I think is to mask the landing of a plane. Are, are you rhyming? I don't know if that's the right word, but are there conscious smoke references across the pictures? And is there something, is there a relationship there you hope we find, see, and think about? Well, I think when you see smoke, you immediately think disaster, you think aftermath, you think the apocalypse. And so I think it's definitely a recurring motive in my work for sure and 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 it could be the, the ending of a movie too you know the horseman riding away and the place is in smoke or arriving and trying to save a place you know and it's in smoke or arriving too late it, it, it's so fraught for me this idea actually smoke much more so than fire itself now that you mention it i'm not sure i recall seeing fire in your work even though i can think of lots of smoke <laughs> There's a, I, I'm looking at the picture in Huma now. I have it in the studio in the corner here. Uh, and there's a bit of fire. Oh, you're right. There is, a, there is a little bit of fire just off the right of the center foreground. We'll have an image of that on, 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 on manpodcast.com. My brain remembered the smoke. <laughs> I think maybe the fire indicates that there's an action going on and the smoke is more the aftermath. And it leaves much more for the imagination, I think. It's much more thought. Speaking of The Silent General, which is, for the sake of brevity, I'll describe it as a series about how a war continues to live on a landscape in the American South 160 years after the thing. About a year or so ago, maybe a little more than that, so before America's national debate over Jim Crow-era monuments to Confederate heroes became prominent, you made a picture in New Orleans of a monument to General P.G.T. Beauregard. We'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com. It's, uh, it's an extraordinary picture, one of my, my very favorites of yours. What about that place and that statue and where it was and what was around it do you remember being struck by as you realized that it was a picture, that it was, you know, an, an Anne Mee Lee? Well, I think, well, I wish I'd been in a cherry picker, to be honest. Yeah, let me. Do, the, the picture is taken from you know, three or, three or four feet above the ground. Yeah, I think I, I had a step ladder, um, but it was not a very tall step ladder. The picture spoke to me because of its ability to. I, I think it's it's fair metaphorical in many ways. A lot of these photographs are are sort of miraculous. In in the, I could not imagine such a picture, to be honest. That that you could have Beauregard. On, 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 you know, on a bronze statue behind a white sheet, or what, what appears to be a white sheet, would not be believable unless you came upon it. <laughs> yeah, and with uh, the, the, the sun rising, it's reddish in front of him. A, a street sign, a one-way sign pointing in to the left, so in the direction of the past. Yeah, so, so, but I think that's why wonder, uh, photography is so wonderful and so surprising. Or photographing in real life is so surprising and so powerful. If you would pay enough attention and if you would let all those, if you would be open to those happy accidents. I, I knew that I had to make a good picture of Beauregard before I left New Orleans. And uh, I think this was during the election. And the weather was terrible. And, and I'd come back to that site many times and I had approached it from so many different angles. And I think this was the last day before I had to leave New Orleans and I decided that the morning light was the best. So we drove there and the light was just not that good. It was, it was awful. And so we just drove around to leave. And when we got to the back, the sun started rising and somehow some of the clouds parted. And I, I just saw the uh, the statue. What's the word? Appearing uh, behind the shroud, and and it, it was incredible. It was 
like being in the drive-in with a kind of projection on it. And so uh, it was a picture to be made. But it, it's, I think I always look for things to um, suggest something else than what they are. It's always very difficult to know when that happens. Do you remember what, or does it matter what that banner says on the other side, that, that white sheet-like thing between us and Beauregard? Oh, it's very pedestrian. It, it, it's, it's a banner. So behind us is the Louisiana Museum of Art, I think, or the New Orleans Museum of Art, NOLA. I don't know the exact title. I should know. And so it's advertising events that are happening at the museum. Given the national debate about Jim Crow era monuments that's been going on over the last six or eight weeks, do you think about that picture and, and making that picture any differently now than you did when you made it? Absolutely not. I just, uh, I'm happy that it's suddenly more relevant, but I think I, I knew that that picture had a potential of speaking about all those issues in complicated ways. Strangely enough, it's, it's in the news. So, I mean, I think it's, it seems that usually something happens that inspires me uh, or that upsets me, and I want to make work about it. And I think here, I mean, it was leading up to it. It's not that monuments were not being contested, but uh, somehow I was sort of in step with the current events. Which is also a problem because I think then suddenly it it, it sort of exploded and uh, it's something that I'm not very comfortable with. And I think when uh, Charlottesville happened, I was in New York and I it was extremely upsetting and I felt that I needed to be down there. And, 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 and of course, it's, it's not the kind of photographer I am. It was a very difficult few days. I think I sat on the couch feeling absolutely dejected and, of course, very upset about what was happening. I, I, didn't, I knew that I should not be down there making pictures, but I didn't know what I, what I should be doing. And so, you know, it, it's something that I, I'm struggling with right now in terms of trying to make work that is current, but that is not uh, frontline news. Yeah, that that picture does it. <laughs> I mean, that picture is 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 full of three different histories all at once, and it's it's just one of the really great things. Two other things I, I want to ask about: you made a series of work that I think I referenced earlier in a basalt quarry up the Hudson, a body of work called Trap Rock. It's obviously on your site, but it may be particularly well known to listeners as it was featured on Art Twenty One. Why did, a, why did a basalt quarry interest you in the first place? It was a commission for Dear Beacon that Lynn Cook gave me. And I think I, 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 would, I, would, I teach at Bard College, and I take the Amtrak train up the Hudson every if I, can, if I can just fill in for listeners who may not be in the, in the United States, Bard College is up the Hudson from, from New York City about an hour, hour and a half, as is this basalt quarry. Yes, so I go to Penn Station uh, every week pretty much the last 15 years now. And um, uh, the Amtrak rides along the Hudson River and right before Poughkeepsie or right after Poughkeepsie, uh, you get a glimpse of, of this quarry and mostly these uh, concrete towers that are looming and that are extraordinary and very monolithic and in a way very mythological. I was wondered what they were. And when I received uh, that commission, I thought, well, what kind of landscape would I be interested in photographing around Dia? And I tried to find a connection to Dia. And, and so the, I remembered that site, and, and it turned out that it's a quarry that extracts the trap rocks, and, and some of it has actually been used in the foundation of Dia Beacon. And so I made arrangements to go and photograph there. And it also connects back to my work with the stonecutters in France, and I had been to many quarries before. And this idea of the transformation of the landscape and, and being able to extract certain things and hopefully not destroy the land itself, but extracting the stone and, and, and transforming that into an architectural uh, structure that is a home, is a religious center, is a, you know, for various reasons. That was interesting to me. So but something about construction and history and the quarry was uh, really extraordinary 
And I think the opposition of scale, you know, the idea of this magnificent, imposing landscape in relationship to the worker and the activity, I think the difference in scale was uh, also something I was interested in. We'll have a link to the Art21 video on, on manpodcast.com too. That, that sense of scale you're talking about is absolutely in your pictures, but it's also in what Art21 shot in the sense that you and the quarry's representative, I think, all look just dwarfed by the enormity of, of the place. Finally, is there an intentional relationship between your bringing the influences of your time and education and experience in America to a place, Vietnam, that America so fundamentally impacted through war? Are you referring specifically to the photographs I made in Vietnam? Or yeah. yeah. I think my intention was to show a Vietnam that had not, that I had not seen represented anywhere. And I think living outside of Vietnam, living in exile, I was always looking for pictures of Vietnam. You know, I would lift the corners of photographs and trying to look for things that spoke to me. And I don't think I ever saw anything that spoke to me about what Vietnam meant to me and, and what the connection was for me. And, and I think that's what I wanted to show. And it didn't matter to me that it completely avoided the subject of war. I didn't, I mean, I think I did go to a, a couple of uh, um, battle sites towards the end of the project, but it was really about the things that somehow made me feel made me understand that was my home and that 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 was uh, that was Vietnam and it had to do with the way the land looked, the, the way the land was worked and the way people worked in the land. So I think I was also afraid that if I didn't do that, you know, it may be destroyed with the next war. I, I, I don't I don't know. One, one of the things that really got me thinking about that kind of feedback loop Vietnam to America, America back to Vietnam, is, is a picture from the Vietnam series of, of, of patches of vegetable, leafy vegetable garden, in which there's a path that comes right, right to where the viewer is standing, and then we see these rectangles of, of vegetables growing. And it's a picture that reminds me very, very much of Thomas Cole's 1836 Oxbow at the Metropolitan, where Cole paints all of the individual fields and farms that he's looking down on as these patches of distinct color and crop. And each of those are rectangles that all kind of bump up against each other, just like in your picture, all of these small plots of leafy greens. I mean, it's a black and white picture, but they're, they're table greens bump up against each other. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but <laughs> it was hard to miss. <laughs> well, I felt that those plants were jewel-like. They were so beautiful, and uh, the greens were so different. It was black and white, but, you know, it would give you a gradation of grays. The light was so beautiful, and, and it, was, it was like a piece of jewelry that I was looking at, this tapestry of jewelry. What I was also told, and this is in a very small village somewhere in the north. Uh, I'd have to look at the uh, location but I was also told that some of the mounds were, were actual graves from way past. And so um, people just used the land and just grew all of these beautiful vegetables on top. And I just love the precision of, of the way uh, the different uh, categories of plants were distributed in the way, you know, it, it was almost like cake decorating. I think that's, that's what I thought of as much as I thought it was a, a tapestry of uh, jewels on the top and then underneath, you know, a much more complicated uh, history. It's a great picture. And me, Lee, thank you uh, so much. I've enjoyed this a lot. Thanks for speaking with me. Yes. Thank you, Tyler. I hope we, um, we will meet one day. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents the Medici's painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence, the first American exhibition of Dolci's work. A favorite of the Medici court, Dolci was a celebrated and popular artist in his time, but his original and personal interpretation of sacred subjects fell out of favor in later centuries. 
The meticulously painted and emotionally charged works in the exhibition come from U.S. museums, private collections, and major European museums, and allow for an overdue reassessment of an old master painter. Carlo Dolci at the Nasher Museum at Duke University, on view through January 14, 2018. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash dolci for more. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view through March 3rd is Living Proof, Drawing in 19th Century Japan, exploring the methods, techniques, and subjects of drawings during Japan's Edo and Meiji periods. Originally created as the primary step in making ukoye prints, drawings of the type exhibited were often discarded or destroyed through the process of printing. With more than 70 of these rare works on display, Living Proof bears witness to the working practices of some of the most celebrated print artists of the era, including Hokusai, Kuniyoshi, and Yoshitoshi. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Experience the high life of 18th century Europe through the eyes of its greatest lover, Giacomo Casanova. Luxury, adventure, intrigue, and seduction. With more than 200 works, including paintings, sculpture, and decorative arts, in a major exhibition bringing his sensational world to life, Casanova, The Seduction of Europe, through December 31st at the Kimball Art Museum. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. Welcome back. My next guest is painter Catherine Bradford. She's showing new and recent work at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in an exhibition titled Focus, Catherine Bradford. It's curated by Allison Hurst, and it'll be on view through January 14th, 2018. Later this fall, Bradford will be included in Prospect 4, curated by Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University curator Trevor Schoonmaker. Bradford's paintings often address traditional painting standards, such as bathers or swimmers, with verve and freshness. She's been included in group exhibitions at museums such as MoMA PS1 and the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and her paintings are in the collections of museums such as the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Brooklyn Museum, and the Smith College Museum of Art. Catherine Bradford, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. What about people in water, whether they're swimmers or swimming or not, is interesting to you? Well, I think of water as very close to paint. As I was stroking on the paint years ago, it looked like water. It looked like light bouncing off the surface of water, which is one way to depict water. So I started out as an abstract painter, but seeing the surface of my paintings look like the surface of water gave me the idea of putting things in it. And naturally, that might be boats or people. So that's how it started. But then I realized with water, there's a lot of transparency and layering. Looking through the water is sort of visually fascinating to me. And the cropping, you can take a figure and not put in the feet. It sort of anchors it into the painting. And it's a great metaphor, plunging, navigating, diving, it, it seemed to work as a way to make a visual statement. One of the things I've, I've noticed in your paintings that now I'm thinking about in, in the context of water is that the figures in your paintings often seem to be light sources. You know, light doesn't necessarily come from beyond, beyond the scene you've painted. The figures themselves often seem to provide the light in the canvas. Is that your intent or is that just a product of playing with the colors of skin against 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 water? You know, no one's directly pointed that out before. And I think it's absolutely true because a lot of my scenes are swimming at night. That's that's a favorite situation. Sometimes the painting starts out light, but then it gets darker and darker. And I, I love the thought of the ocean at night and people in it. Not that I actually do that, but I think it's, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of 
wonderful to think about, not too hard, I guess. You know, the trouble with making the people the light source, which I do, they're, they're kind of, some of them even have halos around them, is that I'm stuck with making the people Caucasian. And I've realized in the past years or so that somehow I've got to solve that and have a more variety of skin color. But I, I've done a lot of paintings, as you pointed out, of night skies with kind of magenta swimmers in them. Yeah, your skin tones vary, but, but, but when they, they vary, they often kind of vary toward the reddish. You know why? I love that color. <laughs> they kind of take on a Nathan Oliveira-like, to go, to go way back in the 20th century painting canon, they kind of take on a, a, a Nathan Oliveira-esque multitude of hues within a single figure. But, but also, you're absolutely correct, the, the light in my paintings is very important, and often I stop the painting when I feel I've gotten a certain light, even though the rest of it may appear underdone or even unfinished. If I like the light in it, I'll stop the painting. So the, the conversation about light and color and light sources within a painting and, and maybe they're not being obvious or, 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 or being held within the painting itself rather than, than coming from outside the scene strikes me as something that Fauvist painters would have discussed in Collior in 1905 and 1906 and such. Are you, were you interested in Fauvism? Was it a motivating thing? Well, I, I love a lot of color in a painting. I, I get restless when the painting doesn't explore in that direction. I can see in an instant if an artist uses color, and a lot of artists don't. And people talk about who's a colorist and who isn't, but to me it's just wanting to explore and celebrate one color next to another which which I just think is a great thing to do as a visual artist. Does it matter if the color is true to the value of something we expect the color to have? I mean, so, you know... No, no, like, like the Fovis. I mean, I saw them, like that wonderful green stripe down the head of, is it Madame Matisse? Amelie Matisse, yes. I mean... That's endlessly fascinating that he did that. Good for him. What a radical step. And that's the kind of thing I admire. I, I suspect strongly that you've made a painting about Matisse's liberation of color, Red Studio Brooklyn from 2016. I imagine that's a painting informed by Matisse's Red Room. Well, certainly by the time I finished that painting, I thought, <laughs> oh my goodness, <laughs> here's a studio and it's entirely red it's di but it's i wanted to update it it's clearly not matisse's studio it doesn't have any paintings on the wall and it's got a big industrial building window which you see all over art communities that use that repurpose factories and mills and stuff as studios a perverted grid. The windows are a perverted grid. Perverted? Well, it's not a true grid. It's a, you know, you have, you have let it slouch and sit and stumble into place. Well, what's interesting to me about that window is that you can see outside. You can see a little bit of light in the distance. And that's a feeling I've had many times being in my studio at night and realizing that I'm alone with my work. I'm kind of in my own world, and but there is a real world outside the window, beckoning or not. I, I wandered away from bathers and water because Matisse leads me into places and I'm powerless to resist. But how long have you been painting swimmers? Do you remember when, when the swimmers and bathers emerged into the work? I don't because it was slow. I think I did it tentatively at first. It wasn't until 2016, really, when I had a solo show at Canada Gallery in New York City that the entire show was about, you know, I don't use the word bather 
was the entire show was figures in relation to water. I don't use the word bather because that seems like another century, the idea of people bathing at beaches. I don't think we do that. I mean, that's that's an interesting and grounding point. And the, the bather's tradition is rich throughout much of particularly French art history, right through Matisse and Picasso and probably later. And in recent years, it's been photographers such as Reniki Dykstra or Richard Mizrak who have who have picked it up most. Were you interested in the bather tradition or was did, did it work its way into the paintings more as, you know, swimmers one might see off of the New York coast? I, I think that the second one, I think the bather tradition irritates me a little bit because the those French painters that you mentioned, many of them had nude women. They they do a beautiful seaside scene and then the nude women would be added. They'd be kind of cavorting. And I saw that as using the female as kind of a symbol of natural mother nature, the, you know, again, taking the woman's body and using it for the male gaze. And as a woman making swimmer paintings, I feel that I am in the water with my figures. I'm not looking at them. It's my experience being a swimmer is what I'm talking about. What's you know one of the things that's interesting about that in in terms of your thinking of yourself as being there with them is that when we are in water and we see other things in water like bodies the the edges are soft the 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 figures become in indistinct and you know not quite lumpen but you know you lose the ability because of the way light moves through water you lose the ability to see a clearly defined figure and and the thing becomes more visually rounded. And and your swimmers are all visually rounded. You know, you're not painting true to anatomy. Oh, I like that phrase, visually rounded. Sometimes I say economical. In the show in Fort Worth, I have a painting called Underwater, Overwater, and it's two figures. One of them you can see clearly at the top of the painting has a diving mask on, but then maybe on second glance, you see there's a second figure that's actually swimming through the water. And that was an important moment to achieve that. It's really an outline, a kind of lumpy outline of a swimmer. But you have to believe that you're looking through the water in order to see that person. It's more about how it feels to be submerged and navigating underwater rather than a description i'm trying to give you the the tone of what it's like to be underwater there's a painting in fort worth titled beachcomber which features a a figure on a pale pink ground apparently bending over although if it weren't for the title of the painting you could also read the figure's activity as as diving and the water is a a light, bright purple. Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And at the risk of phrasing the question awkwardly, what gave you motivation or or permission to make the sea or the lake or whatever it is purple? Oh, I, you know, I didn't even think of it as permission. I mean, purple is just a great color. I I love the range of purple, pinks, blues blue in the underpainting yeah yeah and i think the challenge with that painting was what you see is two legs a bathing suit and an arm that's all so my question to myself was do i need to put in more is this enough will will the viewer understand the body language of this beachcomber it's a it's a painting that seems to me anyway to be full of of art history references in addition to kind of the 
the freedom of the fauve palette, the freedom to make anything you want, any color you want. There are rocky cliffs at the top of the painting that seem kind of straight out of Courbet. Do you think about, are you interested in, do you care about art historical references such as that? Well, I can't say I was thinking of Courbet, but I think when I stepped back and looked at the top, it was satisfying to me, perhaps because I had seen paintings where brushstrokes suggested landscape. You know, I just thought of this great Matisse painting of a woman, and sh- and she's striding forth in water, and the blue p- blue paint is sort of bubbling around her legs. Do you know that one? I think it's in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Oh, I do know on, on Bather, the, the the painting on a blue background. It's so good because it's very brief, but the relation between the figure and the water is just right. You you feel the body is stopped a little by the water, but also you you feel that paint that it's the body is stopped by the paint as well as by the water. I I love that painting. I've often wished I could do something like that. It is a really mysterious painting. Uh, the body is is obviously a body, but the torso and and the head are are shapes rather than forms. Somehow the water seems to jump up against the picture plane, even though we see breaking water around the figure's legs. You know, it's not an abstract painting, but it's in that time when Matisse is beginning to move in that, you know, toward that willingness to see how far he can wander, you know? <laughs> yes, and it's almost a drawing. He, he's using black outlines and not conforming to them much. And that moment that you just talked about where the water is breaking around the legs, I think is got such wonderful visual tension that he didn't have to do much more to make it an exciting painting. No, no, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a a pretty wild thing, almost minimal. The last painting of yours I wanted to ask about is a couple, couple years old. It's Surfer from 2015. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, of course. And it's a painting that made me wonder when in your process of making a painting, the figures come into it. Surfer is a painting that, you know, one way to read it is as, is, as, a, as an update of, of Rothko. It, it has some, some hovering patches of color that only when one sees the figures do those patches of colors read as sea and surf. So I was wondering when the people come into it. I think your your take on this is absolutely right because the people were almost an afterthought or the surf was almost an afterthought. I had to balance that. And the use of Rothko's color fields, his sort of transparent, light-filled planes of color are something that I like and I use. And I and I'm often think how Rothko worked very hard to rid his paintings of subject matter like people. He wanted the purity of a light a light filled color. That's all. And I'm turning it back to being sky, water, surf. Do you think he'd be outraged at me? <laughs> I'm not a Rothko expert, but my my suspicion is he and many of his colleagues would be perplexed that a painter would feel the need to add figures to a perfectly good painting. (laughs) Except his friend Milton Avery, who did just that. And I think they were okay with each other's work. So this surfer painting maybe has a lot to do with Milton Avery's divisions of sky and land and water. The people in the surfer painting are very small. So as you said, you, you, you notice them secondly, maybe. 
And also that little surfer figure was kind of found. It was an awkward person in a bathing suit that looked like it might be on a on a surfboard. So I painted in the surfboard after I saw the figure. Were the figures then the last thing that you painted except for the surfboard? No, I think there were a lot of figures and I started editing them out and got it down to maybe three. Or I found the surfer one, I put the surfboard in and then maybe put added some more. I was pleased at the interest that painting got from surfers because I'm not a surfer and I've actually never surfed. But I hope that was somewhat convincing. The very last thing I wanted to ask about, as opposed to the last painting I wanted to ask about, we've been talking a lot about how you put people in water. I don't know what you're showing at Prospect 4 in New Orleans later this year, but there's, given recent history, a a certain context to people being in water in New Orleans. Does that interest you, concern you, engage you? You mean the flood, the catastrophe part of it? Yeah. I was also thinking of that with my recent show in Texas, that maybe having water is not a happy sight at all. Yes, that's something to think about, the role of water as disaster. Well, I did do a painting called Fear of Waves that has one side of the painting is waves rolling in, and the other side is lots of people running away from the waves. It's not that realistic. I think it's more about fear than it is about water or waves. But I, I think there is an aspect of people being in water that is dark. There's a dark. And that's probably good because I don't want to do paintings of leisure time I want it to be a larger, more universal theme, maybe even epic. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a very cool painting. It's an it's aqua waves crashing into into water with people with arms splayed, and you can't quite tell except for the maybe the title of the painting if they're at play or if the situation is of concern. Right. What one writer said. She could hear the squeals from the people when she looked at the painting, that there was a little bit of sound for her coming from that painting. That's a neat idea. Catherine Bradford, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.